Now, before inviting Rick to the podium, I would like to read a bio to explain a little bit more who he is. Rick McGue is the founder and president of Local Church Apologetics and the coordinator of the Truth Conferences held in various locations across America with Josh McDowell and other speakers from around the nation. Rick is also the author of Faith and Reason Made Simple, a book designed to help the average Christian understand and communicate Christian apologetics. He has also produced, he has also produced the video television teaching seminar Faith and Reason Made Simple, which is available along with teacher's manual and student manuals for churches, schools, families, and individuals. After 34 years of pastoring, Rick has followed the Lord's leading to step away from pastoring to devote the rest of his life to equipping local churches and believers of all ages in how to defend their Christian faith in the midst of the unbelieving culture of the 21st century America. Rick now travels and speaks at churches, schools, conferences, etc., delivering sermons, outreaches, teachings, and seminars, all filled with visual content to help the listener grasp the truths being shared. Local Church Apologetics is working with other apologetic ministries to provide church-friendly materials to assist local churches in teaching apologetics to every age group within the body of Christ. Rick and his wife, Val, live in Moline, Illinois, they have three grown sons and eight grandchildren. More information about Rick and local church apologetics can be found at their website, localchurchapologetics.com. So let's give a warm welcome to Rick as he leads us this morning. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. It's great to be here with you today. We've looked forward to coming and uh, known Pastor Ed for some time, but uh, now we have the opportunity to meet all of you and uh, look forward to that. What a wonderful time of worship. Commend your worship team. Wonderful job. And uh, you know, some, to be honest, I guess everybody feels this way. There's some worship songs you like better than others because some of them you kind of trying to you get lost in the lyrics, thinking, "What's that really saying?" Um, these songs, you didn't have to wonder what they were saying. They're just very direct about the Lord and His His goodness and His glory. Amen. I've entitled this message this morning: "Faith, Reason, and Reality." If you think about it, the greatest possession that you have in all of life is your faith. It's the only thing you have that's eternal. It's the thing that will go with you beyond the grave and determine what uh, it looks like beyond the grave. Amen? And so it, it, some people might say, well, my greatest possession is my family. Well, the way you relate to your family is based on your faith and your ability to uh, communicate properly with your kids and leave a legacy. And so faith is extremely important. But we live in a culture where there's many voices that are saying, well, wait a second here. If faith is, if that's your thing, then you have to leave reason at the door because you can't be a person of faith and reason. If you're intellectual, if you're rational in your thinking, then you got to get rid of your faith. But that's voices like uh, this guy. His name is um, Dr. Peter Bogosian at Portland State University, a philosophy professor. He defines faith this way. He says, faith means belief without evidence. Belief without sufficient evidence or belief on the, from the basis 
of no evidence. He goes further in some of his talks and says, well, faith really means pretending to know things you don't know. And based on his definition of faith, he tries to talk young people out of their faith and move them away from it. He, he says um, that... Um, happen here there my book is a well skip forward there okay being a person of faith does not make you a good person it just means that you have a a process of thinking about the world that is less likely to bring you to the truth and he's written a book called a manual for creating atheists he says my book is about how to talk people out of faith tradition out of irrationality out of superstition and into reason he said in a radio interview, he's looking for 10,000 people to be trained with the techniques found in this book. And they ask him, well, what if people formed an organization based on your book? And he said, an organization, that's a fantastic idea. Form organizations so that you can exchange, where we can say, hey, this is what worked in my intervention. Maybe we should try this. And then maybe we can go to the churches together and wait until the church gets out. Think about it. And we know it's our calling to go out of the church into the world and bring people into faith, right? We call that evangelism. But we need to understand that we now have a culture where there are people who think it's their life's mission to go into the church and bring people out of faith and so supposedly bring them into reason. Other people like Richard Dawkins, who says faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Or Bill Maher, who says faith means the purposeful suspension of critical thinking. It's nothing to be admired. You see, these are among many voices in the culture that are affecting people's thought processes like this. Uh, Gallup has been doing this poll for many years. In 1980, you can see 40% of the people felt like the Bible was actually the word of God, and only 10% that the Bible was just the recordings of men, ancient uh, fables and history and moral precepts. But look what's happened over the last 40 years. The number of people that truly believe the Bible is the actual word of God has been plummeting, while the number of people believing it's just the writings of men has been increasing continually over the last 40 years. It's it's as though there, there's a Goliath in our culture. In David's day, there was a nine-foot-nine-inch soldier who stood on the battlefield and intimidated the people of God. And day after day, he called out and said, Come on, send somebody out here to fight me. And if I go down, my people will serve you. But if he goes down, if whoever you send out goes down, your people will serve our people. And day after day, he called out in intimidation. And the people of God were crippled with fear. It's like the guys are standing around saying, I ain't going out there. Well, I ain't going out there either. Until one day, a young man showed up that had just been spending time with God, meditating upon who God is, and, and experiencing day by day who God is. And he came by, and he was like, what's going on with you guys? Why doesn't somebody go out there and fight this guy? He's not just mocking you. He's mocking God. And that's what's happening in our culture. They're not just mocking the church, they're mocking God. And yet much of the church is crippled with fear. Just like in David's day, you see, I believe that there was a spirit behind Goliath, 
And that spirit is active in America today. It doesn't look like a nine-foot-nine-inch soldier. It looks like professors standing behind a podium at a university or even sometimes high school teachers and people in media and even government officials sometimes who are basically saying to the church, all that stuff you believe isn't real. And don't bring it out here into the marketplace. Don't bring it out here into the real life, because if you do, you're going down. Because you don't have any evidence to back up what you believe. Now, that's a lie, but it's loud. And it has intimidated much of the church to where many people in the church today just say, yeah, I better keep my mouth shut. I better not talk much about my faith, because somebody might ask me a question of why I believe what I believe, and I don't know what I would say to them. Because you see, much of the church has never taught people why we believe what we believe. We've told people what we believe, but we've raised kids throughout the church and never told them why we believe it's true. And some of those same kids, even when they go home and ask mom and dad, why do we believe these things? Don't be asking questions like that, just believe. Grandma believed it. Mama believes it, so you ought to believe it. That's not good enough. Many young people are walking away from faith because of it. In addition to this reason for needing to be able to defend our faith, we need to understand there's another reason because we're living in the last days and we're warned about this. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There's deception in the world all around us today, and it's why we need to know what we believe and understand why we believe that this book is absolute truth for every generation. It's just as true today as it was a 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago, and we build our lives upon this. But if you don't know why you believe this book to be true, it's pretty hard to truly stand upon it when you're challenged. That's why we need... Christian apologetics. We live in uncertain times, times of fear and anxiety, confusion, uncertainty. And we need to understand something Jesus said, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. We need to build our lives upon the truth of God's word. But I tell you, some of you like me that are a little bit older, you might say, well, yeah, I don't really need Christian apologetics to do that. I'm already doing that. I believe the Bible is the word of God. But I will guarantee you this. If you don't incorporate some apologetics understanding in your life, you're going to have a pretty tough time helping your grandkids. Or for some of you a little bit younger, maybe your children. Because they're not going to be satisfied just that because the church teaches it or because grandma believed it, that's enough for me. When they face Dr. Bogosian or somebody like that in their life who's screaming in their ear saying that stuff the church is teaching is irrational and unreasonable. Now again, they're lying. It's very rational and very reasonable, and matter of fact, the evidence overwhelmingly confirms what we believe, but most people have never studied the evidence. That's why I stepped away from pastoring after 34 years 
to do what I'm doing today because I recognize this is an urgent need within our culture. And people of all different faiths and backgrounds need help in this area so that we can stand firmly upon the rock of Jesus' word in the midst of a difficult time that we live in. Actually, reason and faith go together wonderfully because they're both based on evidence. Now, Christian apologetics is never designed to eliminate faith. We're told in the book of Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But what it does is it comes alongside to strengthen your faith. Because the more evidence you see that confirms what you believe from the word of God, the more that your faith is strengthened and becomes more solid. The Bible tells us this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready. Say this line with me. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always being ready to make a defense. That's where the word apologetics comes from. Because in the Greek, make a defense is the word apologia. The Greek word apologia is translated make a defense. So apologetics does not mean to apologize for your faith. It's the opposite of that. It means defend your faith. So that when somebody says, okay, Christian, I'm going to give you one shot here. Tell me why do you believe that stuff? Rather than us going, oh my, I was afraid somebody might ask me that. It should be that we get a big smile on our faces. I'm so glad you asked. How much time you got to talk? That we begin to share the reason. Be ready. Notice this is a command. It's not a suggestion. Hey, if some of you don't have anything else to do, you might consider this. No, this is a command to every believer. Always be ready to make a defense when people ask you about the hope that's within you. And so that's what today is all about. We're going to talk about evidences, and I'm going to give you just a few examples. There's much, much more. There's four hours of what I'm about to share with you in these videos. So there's a lot more evidence, and that's not... Uh, exhaustive either. There's much more than that. But I'm going to touch on a few things from science, history, and in the realities of the world today that confirm that the Christian faith is true and give you an example of the types of things that confirm our faith. First of all, from the realm of science, think about this. They tell us that the universe is finely tuned. What that means is there, there's all these laws of physics and and these uh, physical constants, if you see there in the bottom right-hand corner, the force of gravity, there's the mathematical formula for it. The G in that formula is called a physical constant. And the value of the G determines the value of the, of the, of the whole formula. So the force of gravity is one of at least 30. It's like a knob, a dial that somebody set exactly where it has to be for there to be stars and galaxies and life in the universe. Here's an example. Dr. Robin Collins, a, uh, a physicist, gives this example. He says, just, just consider just the force of gravity for a moment. He said, imagine if you could a ruler from one end of the universe to the other end of the universe. Now, they say that they think that's about 90 billion light years. So this is a big ruler. You don't put this in your backpack and take it to school. 
And this huge ruler, he said, then you divide it into inches all the way along. And then you mark right here is the force of gravity where it sets. He said it's so precise, if you moved it one inch either way, there wouldn't be any galaxies, any stars, any planets. There'd be no living life forms like us that could exist anywhere in the universe. Somebody set the dial exactly where it has to be. And that's one of at least 30, and they're all like that. Somebody set every dial perfectly where it needs to be. You see something here we already are seeing that fits with what we believe, doesn't it? Because we believe, say it with me, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it makes sense. He's somebody that's wise and powerful, set every dial exactly where it needs to be. So we have a finely tuned universe that allows for life. But what do you, what do you, how do you explain it if you don't believe in God? If you're promoting this idea that there was an explosion 13.8 billion years ago, the Big Bang, and out of that, unguided, undirected processes have brought us to where we're at today. But this universe is perfect. How do you explain it? Well, they do have an explanation. It's, it's called the multiverse theory. How many of you have heard of the multiverse theory? A few of you. Here's how, it shouldn't be called a theory, but they call just about anything a theory nowadays. If somebody has an idea, oh, oh let's call it a theory. Theory is supposed to be well-tested. But here's the multiverse theory. It's, Maybe there's not one universe. Maybe there are millions of universes. And if there's millions of universes, well, now we've just increased greatly the chances of one of them accidentally being perfect. That's the best they can come up with. And I want to show you a video clip of Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is one of the, an astrophysicist and one of the leading spokesmen in America for evolutionary theory, and listen to what he says about the multiverse theory. The Big Bang, by the way, could fit into a larger story. For example, the multiverse. Big Bang is probably not the whole story. It's probably a piece of a bigger story. So maybe there are multiple Big Bangs. This would give us the multiverse. We don't have data for this, but we have good theoretical and philosophical reasons to think that a multiverse exists. So I appreciate his honesty. There is no data for it. No scientific data to support the idea of a multiverse. So here's the options. We already, we've just looked at one thing and it fits absolutely perfectly with our worldview. It's what you would expect if God created the heavens and the earth, but it is not what you would expect from an explosion and then unguided, undirected processes with no intelligence involved. And they admit the best theory they can come up with has no data to support it. It's just theoretical, philosophical reasons to try to explain a perfect universe. You see, we already are at a point, we already are seeing what we believe is rational and reasonable. Let's move to a whole different area. 
I want to talk to you about Bible prophecy. How do this, this will, if, if you could only remember one piece of evidence to confirm that this book is the Word of God, this is the one I would encourage you to consider. The scattering and regathering of the Jews, the prophetic words of Scripture. About 2,500 years ago, numerous prophets wrote about this that God was going to scatter the Jewish people around the world, and that happened in the first century A.D. But more importantly, he said this, these kinds of things. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So, now there's many more. Uh, other prophets, Amos and Isaiah said a lot. Uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel said a lot about this, that God was going to, in the last days, bring the Jewish people back into their homeland. Now, think about this. So he's saying this. This group of people, this nation, is going to be scattered around the world for over 1,800 years. And then I'm going to bring them back and reestablish them as a nation. Now, that kind of thing's never happened to any people group, any nation, ever in history. So it's a pretty bold prophecy written in numerous places 2,500 years ago in this book. If we were talking about this 125 years ago, we'd be scratching our heads saying, boy, God, I don't know. You said this in your word, but I don't see any way this could possibly happen. The Ottoman Empire, a Muslim empire, had been ruling over ancient Israel for 400 years, including Jerusalem. They didn't want Jewish people there, of course. It didn't look like there was any way possible that this would happen. But in the late 1800s, this guy Theodore Herzl began to have a dream that rose up in his heart. It was called Zionism. They had a Zionist conference in Europe. And they began to talk about, what about if we went back and reestablished a homeland where we used to live almost 2,000 years ago. And a few Jewish people got so moved and motivated that they actually moved to Israel, though it was very difficult to live there at that time. And not many of them did it. But something was started in the late 1800s. They called it Aliyah, when it means to ascend, when people come from other countries back into the land of Israel. But then something happened in World War I. The British armies overcame the Ottoman Empire and took over that area. And in the fall of 1917, during the war, they signed the Balfour Declaration that said, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. Whoa, now something's going on. The British take over the area and say, we're in favor of making a place for the Jews to live. More of them started coming back, thousands and thousands of them. And then we fast forward to World War II, and you're familiar with the Holocaust and six million Jews being brutally killed. But one of the things that that, that did is it sent a signal to Jewish people around the world, we're really not safe. We might ought to consider going back and creating our own nation to protect ourselves from this kind of thing happening other places in the world. And so more and more of them came. Also, right after World War II, 
as the United Nations confirmed what the League of Nations had done in 1922, officially recognized a homeland for Israel. And in 1948, Isaiah 66.8 was fulfilled. It says, can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. After World War I, the British mandate established that the British soldiers would keep the peace in that area. And they, they put a date on it that May 14th, 1948, would be the end of the British mandate and the British soldiers would leave. And they did. That morning and that afternoon, in one day, Israel declared its statehood, itself a nation. And within 11 minutes of that, this press release came from the United States president acknowledging Israel as a new nation. And other presidents and world leaders did the same. One day, a new nation was born, fulfilling Isaiah 66, 8, ancient prophecy of the word of God. And they continued to come back. We fast forward to the late 1980s. Help me with this, some of you that are a little bit older. Our president, President Reagan, said in front of the whole world, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And he did. We watched in amazement. I still remember seeing this as people gathered in East Germany on that concrete wall, and they had... Uh, pickaxes and they had sledgehammers and, and they were knocking hunks of concrete out and there was a big celebration. People around the world were amazed that overnight the Iron Curtain had fallen and what nobody was allowed in and out before and then suddenly people were allowed to go in and out. But what the world didn't understand was what was really going on. The God of the Bible was fulfilling his word. Because in the next five years, about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jewish people who had been stuck behind the Iron Curtain moved and went home to Israel. Fast forward to 1991. There were thousands of Ethiopian Jews that wanted to go back and make Israel their home. But they couldn't leave. And so Operation Solomon was established by the Israeli military. They took 747 jets and took the seats out of them so that they could jam as many people in there as possible. You can look it up in the Guinness Book of World Records. One of these flights had 1,088 people on it. Babies were born on the airplane on the way to Israel. They were so desperate to get their pregnant ladies, just got on the plane, had their baby on the way back to Israel. In 36 hours, 14,325 Ethiopian Jews were airlifted to Israel and made it their home. You see, we've been watching a miracle. Here's the summary of it. In 1920, 5.4% of all the Jews in the world lived in Israel. 100 years later, now 47% of all the world's Jews live in Israel. No book could predict such a thing if it's just the writings of men. Only God, who knows the end from the beginning, can say such things. There's no book in all the world, except for this one, the Bible, that can do such things, can predict such things. There's reasons we believe it's the word of God. But we need to understand these things. This would be something, wouldn't it be great to be able to share with a skeptic what I just shared with you? 
and say, let me tell you why I believe the Bible is the word of God. And this is one among many different evidences that confirm the Bible is the word of God. He not only said the people were going to come back, but look what he said about the land. I'll multiply the fruit of the tree, the produce of the field. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation. They will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Well, he said the land's going to blossom. In 1867, Mark Twain went to this part of the world, and he wrote this description in his book, Innocence Abroad. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land, a silent, mournful expanse. But since 1867, more than 400 million trees have been planted. The rains have returned. World-class irrigation systems have been put in place. It's now a fruit-exporting nation and a leader in technology, with Tel Aviv being the second leading place in the whole world for technology behind the Silicon Valley. You see, the land has blossomed, just like the Bible said it would in the last days. Let's move on to a whole other area. Now we kind of go back to more of a science-type area, confirming that God is our creator. We look at the human body. In Psalm 139, we're told that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The whole process of going from one cell to trillions of cells in nine months and all those cells becoming 200 different kinds of cells and they find their place and they start working together and a beautiful little baby is born. That's a miracle in itself multiple times over. But let's just talk a little bit about the human body. We should be able to see evidence in our body of a designer if God did it. We look at an automobile and we see fuel systems and cooling systems and electrical systems. We see engines and transmissions all working together. Well, when we look at the human body, we see 11 major systems all working together. Each one of them is miraculous in itself. But then you put them all together and it's really amazing. Consider just a few things. The circulatory system. They tell us if you could take all the blood vessels out of your body and you could tie them end to end they would stretch 60,000 miles, enough to go around the world two and a half times. That's each one of us. And then in the center of the circulatory system is the heart. It beats about 100,000 times a day, 2.5 to 3 billion times in an average human being's lifetime. It has four chambers, so these valves, a valve for each chamber, had to be designed in such a way they're so flexible and efficient they can open and close billions of times, but so durable they can last 70, 80, 90, 100 years, opening and closing every moment of your life. We see that the heart is pumping about 2,000 gallons of blood each day. That's enough in an average human being's lifetime to fill a train of tanker cars about 25 miles long. The greatest minds in the world cannot improve upon the design of the human heart. Think about that. There's two explanations for that. Here's number one. The most brilliant minds in the world can't improve upon the design of the human part because it was designed and created by an awesome God who created all of heavens and earth. There's a second option. Here's option number two. The most brilliant minds in all the world cannot improve upon the design of the human heart because there was an explosion 13.8 billion years ago. And undirected processes with no intellect involved have brought about this amazing piece of machinery. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? 
You see, rational thinking confirms what the human, uh, what the Christian believes. Think of your nervous system. Seven trillion nerves spanning 65 to 90,000 miles of sensation, carrying messages at speeds over 250 miles per hour throughout the body, controlled by the brain that weighs three pounds but has 100 billion neurons in it, considered by researchers the most sophisticated machine in the universe. Those, there's the junction points in between all those neurons called synopses. The number of synopses in your brain changes every moment of your life, but they believe it's somewhere around 100 trillion synopses. The researchers who did this said it would take 10,000 automated microscopes 30 years to map the connections in the human brain. And they came to this conclusion, the human brain is more complex than an entire galaxy. Your brain is processing about 100,000 bits of information every second, most of which you're never conscious of. What an amazing machine. How did it come about? Obvious answer isn't there. The kidneys are filtering your blood 400 times a day. How do they do that? We know the blood is filtered in the kidneys, but do you ever think about how? That's one filtering plant called a nephron. There's a million of those in each of your kidneys that are sophisticatedly filtering your blood every day. The human eye is composed of more than 2 million working parts and 10 million nerve cells that are interacting, that researchers said it would take supercomputers 100 years to simulate what's happening every second in your eye. Now look with me for a moment, at the back of the eye, you see all that concentration of blood vessels? That's because so much is going on back there. It needs, there's more concentration of blood vessels there than anywhere else in the body. But you also have some blood vessels in the front of your eye. But did you notice you don't see them? It's not because they're not there. We're gonna trick your brain. Your brain, God is so graciously wired at such, it's just wiping those blood vessels out so they don't bother you. But let's trick our brains for a moment. Oh, we'll save that for another time. I don't have the slide in there. I skipped that part. It's pretty cool. You just sometimes make a little small hole, look at a, a white wall, and jiggle it in front of your eye, and you'll see those blood vessels that are there uh, that you're looking through every moment. Let's skip, though, to the human cell. A hundred trillion reasons to believe in God, I like to call them. Dr. Linus Pauling who was considered the greatest chemist of the 20th century, said this, just one living cell in the human body is more complex than all of New York City. Let that sink in for a moment. How complex every cell of your body is with billions of microscopic machines functioning together. Now let's look at one thing that the cell is doing. It's producing proteins. It's estimated each cell, on average, is producing 2,000 proteins a second. So you got 100 trillion cells producing 2,000 proteins every second of your life. 100 trillion times 2,000 per second, or you'd be dead. So it must be really easy to produce a protein, right? Well, I'm going to show you how proteins are produced. And what I'm about to show you, I've done in front of numerous doctors, and they've confirmed this is the way it works. So here we go. It starts in the nucleus of the cell where the DNA is stored. We've got to get the blueprint to build this protein. It's going to be found in a gene, 
which is a section of DNA that conveniently has a start sign and a stop sign to help this process. A microscopic machine designed to unfold a section of DNA comes along and unfolds this section. Behind that comes another microscopic machine called an RNA polymerase designed to copy all that genetic information. It's going to create a copy called an RNA messenger molecule. Now, you've been hearing about RNA in the vaccine talk about COVID. RNA messenger molecule. This is the blueprint for building this protein. All right, it's going to be released from the nucleus through the pores, which are like the gatekeepers determining what goes in and out of the cell. Outside of the nucleus, it's now going to be combined with another machine called a ribosome. A ribosome is designed to copy all this genetic information and create a string of amino acids. Now, there's 20 amino acids that code for proteins. The average human protein is about 300 amino acids long. So you've got to get one out of 20, the right one, 300 times in a row to get this protein. But it happens all the time because it's directed by information. But once we get this string of amino acids, we're not done yet. We've got to fold it. It's not a protein until it's folded, right? So it's chaperoned across the cell to another machine, a barrel-shaped organelle that's designed for folding proteins. Inside there, it's going to be folded properly. Once it's folded properly inside this barrel-shaped organelle, we now have one new protein. But we're not done yet because this protein's got to get to the right place for the right use at the right time. So it's going to be chaperoned across the cell to another place called the Golgi apparatus or Golgi body, which is the post office of the cell. I'm not kidding you here. Now, get this. It's going to be packaged with other proteins like it that are being produced in packages called vesicles. And if you look carefully on the side of what it probably would be look more like a sack than a box, you see the label? There's a label put on it, what kind of proteins are in here and where they need to go. It's released into the transportation system of the cell where these motor proteins called kinesin, they've got two arms, two legs, and a body. They pick up the sacks of proteins, look at the label to see where they need to go, then carry them on the highway system of the cell called motor, or, um, microtubules, and they deliver them in the right place for the right use at the right time, 2,000 times 100 trillion times per second, or you'd be dead. If anybody could look at that and say, Looks to me like there must have been an explosion 13.8 billion years ago. And I don't see any intellect involved in any of that. Woo, their faith level is off the charts. You see, the evidence confirms there is a God. Now, behind, underneath all of this is DNA, like a computer software program, only much more sophisticated than any humanly developed software program. Anytime you find coded, usable information, it always points to intelligence, doesn't it? Language does not pop up out of explosions. Let me illustrate that for you in a very simple illustration. And we're about done here. Um, if you and I walk along the seashore and we look down in the sand, we see these words, I love you. That's not much information, is it? Eight letters only three small words, 
But would you not agree with me if you see that written in the sand? There's enough information there you'd say, somebody's been here. Somebody wrote that in the sand. I would, I would stake my life on it. Nobody would legitimately say, well, you know, wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec. With waves moving sand particles around, given enough time, maybe. No. When we see information, we know it comes from intelligence. And inside every cell of your body is three billion base pairs of coded, usable information, of language that dictates who you are and screams at us, there is a God. And in a very real sense says to us as well, he's saying, I love you. Because your DNA is different than any person that's ever lived. You're unique and special to God. and He knows you and has a purpose for your life. He has revealed himself through the things that he's made, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, been clearly seen and understood through all that's been made so that we are without excuse. And I close with this. Another evidence of the reality of Christianity is the impact of changed lives. Think about it. We date our calendar back to the coming of Jesus, his birth, all of the years before he came and all the years after because he changed the world like nobody else has. And that's just a fact. And it's seen on our calendars around the world every day. We could talk about millions of people throughout history who have been changed. Even in modern history, in Africa in particular, in China. But I want to boil it down to one life to close this. And if the worship team wants to come and be in place, we're about done here. I want you to think about this. This picture won't mean much to you, but it means an awful lot to me. There's a young man about to get baptized in water. And that young man, this picture was taken in about 1960 or 61. I was about this tall at that time. And that young man is my dad. My dad was a wild, crazy young guy. He got 13 speeding tickets in one year. That's before they took your license away after two or three. You know. My dad loved to gamble. He loved to drink and just do other stuff that just wasn't good. And he was seriously thinking about leaving my mom and leaving me as a little toddler to go do his thing. But my grandma was a Christian, and that was, that's her pastor in the dark hair, the little bow tie there. She said to Pastor Lyon, would you get together with my son? I'm really concerned for him. And he said, I'd be glad to. And they, she set it up for them to meet at a restaurant and have a Coke, and they talked. And during that conversation, Pastor Lyon led my dad to Jesus. My dad opened up his heart and invited Jesus into his life. And I want you to know he never left. He became an awesome dad, an awesome husband. He became the head usher at the church. He never missed a day of work. Even when he was sick, he normally went to work. And he told me every day, I love you, buddy. He would take me golfing. He cut a set of clubs off about that long when I was about six years old. And he would 
take me out on the golf course. And I can remember so many times walking down the fairway and he'd look over and he'd say, buddy, there ain't anybody in the world I'd rather be out here with than you. That's the kind of dad he was because Jesus is real and he transforms lives and takes a wild, crazy young man and makes him a man of God and makes him a dad, and makes him a husband, and makes him somebody that people respect and look up to because Jesus is real. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that there's evidence that confirms everything we believe as Christians, that confirms that you are real, that you are alive, that your word, the Bible, is true. I pray today something will happen that will, Holy Spirit, you'll take this and now confirm it in every heart in such a way that people are strengthened in their faith and and built up in their faith, and especially the young people that are here. I thank you for them, and I pray that today will be a marked day for them, that they'll know, man, there's reasons we believe these things to be true. Bless this church, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus. And if there's anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, I pray that even right now, They'd open up their heart like my dad did and say, Jesus, come into my life. You died on the cross for me and you rose from the dead. I accept you into my life and put my faith in you as my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.